Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name's Ruth Hayes. I'm chair of Labour's Women, uh, Women's Committee, uh, and I'm a representative of Labour Women Leading, as well as sitting on Unite's Executive Council. Uh, and I'm really pleased to be part of this event tonight, bringing together people to look at how we respond to the Tories appointing Liz Truss as our new Prime Minister during this deepening cost of living crisis, and also this period of deepening resistance to the Tory offensive. I'm really pleased to say that uh, well over 500 people have registered in advance of this event and thousands more will be joining us on social media. It could not come at a more vital time, just two days after the new Prime Minister was announced, after the carnival of reaction and race to the bottom that was this summer's Tory leadership campaign. And of course, it was also a summer of inaction from Boris Johnson as millions suffer with rising bills and falling wages. The Tories have used the pandemic to further restructure the economy in the interests of the super rich, whilst attacking our right to resist. And now an even bigger class war from the ruling elite against the overwhelming majority of us is coming, both on the economic front and in terms of further attacks on our rights plus a massive offensive against the oppressed in our communities under the completely reactionary banner of a so-called war on woke. We need today to look not only at what we can expect in terms of policies and agenda from the new right-wing prime minister, but also, of course, what can be done to resist it and what the policy alternatives are that put people first. We're at a crossroads, and I can't remember a time like this uh, in my lifetime. Now is the time to build the fight back, to put socialist solutions on the agenda. As this session goes on, please put po post some, your questions in the comments below the stream on YouTube. And uh, if you're joining us on Zoom in the question and answer section, uh, and we will try and put some of those to our panel at the end. We're really keen to hear from people and those comments are all read. And uh, you know, even if we don't get to ask them tonight, we'll certainly inform future work. But also great to hear where you're tuning in from, what actions you're involved with in your area and your trade union, and what key policies you believe should be part of the left's alternative. Um, if you're able to, please also donate at the link provided uh, so that Arise can continue hosting these important events and support the other campaigns and links put it, that will be put in the chat throughout the event, uh, including by sharing the stream of this event on Twitter and Facebook so that even more people can tune in. Um, just to outline uh, how this evening will run, we've got a, a fantastic panel for you. Our speakers will all be um, introduce their thoughts for up to seven minutes each, and then we'll move on to your questions. So I'm really pleased to move on so that we can start to hear from our speakers. And our first speaker this evening is Rebecca Long-Bailey, MP who was a key architect of Labour's Green New Deal policies and is also the MP for Salford. So, Rebecca, thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Ruth. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me to speak. So Boris is gone, but it's really no time to celebrate. Things are about to get a whole lot worse. Investment bank Goldman Sachs has predicted inflation of about 22% by early next year. And many people, many economists, are talking about a recession that's not just worse than the 2008 one, but worse than anything that has happened full stop in the post-war period. And we're in no position to soften the blow economically at the moment. 12 years of austerity have brought our public services and social safety net to absolute breaking point. So what will we see from Liz Truss during this period of pain where people are going to starve, they're going to lose their homes, their livelihoods, and their hope? Well, frankly, brace yourselves because the answer to everything so far that we have gleaned from Liz Truss is low tax and fracking. That will apparently save us. And this is the Prime Minister who, remember, is against wealth redistribution. She thinks tax cuts that favour the rich are fair. She's pro-fracking. She co-authored a book calling British workers amongst the worst idlers in the world. And she advocated widespread rollouts of enterprise zones, which offer freedom from corporate and personal taxes and minimal regulation. And on this rolling back of regulation and rights, we've already heard today in Parliament 
that the Tories have pulled the proposed Bill of Rights from next week's parliamentary agenda, presumably in order to make it even more ruthless. Now, remember, this was the piece of legislation that Boris Johnson was using to rip up the Human Rights Act and with it our fundamental rights. So you can see where this Liz Truss uh, leadership is headed. We're about to see what I can only describe as Night of the Living Dead meets Gordon Gecko. Remember the character from that film in the 1980s, Wall Street, it was a symbol of greed um, and uh, unrestrained greed at that. Now, that's not to say that we won't see a little bit from Liz Truss in the coming weeks. I think we'll see a very brief flurry of largely insufficient cost of living support measures in an attempt to boost her poll ratings in a really prime ministerial period because she's not got good poll ratings at the moment. But thereafter, as we saw from today's prime minister's questions, she's very ideological and we're heading down what can only be described as a very dystopian road. It's a road that will revive the most malign and destructive aspects of failed 1980s right-wing trickle-down economic doctrine. You remember the doctrine that said that it's fine to you know, have unrestrained greed and minimal regulation because when the wealth gets sucked up to that 1% at the top, it'll trickle down to all of us, but we know that will never, ever happen. Now, if you dare to speak out against any of this, the picture is going to be equally as bleak. If your health and safety rights are thrown out of the window, for example, in one of these free trade zones, well, the Prime Minister has also promised to introduce legislation targeting action by trade unions and increasing the ballot threshold required for strike action. Now, it's ironic that because despite her own vote share being less than this proposed threshold, she seems to think that it's acceptable for trade union strike ballots. Now, I've painted a very pressing picture, but I have to say amidst this despair, we have hope because a movement is building. And I think we're at a pivotal moment now of social and political change. We've seen rallies right across the country in recent weeks, like Enough is Enough, who are mobilising thousands of people who have never been involved in politics before largely, and brought them together to demand action on the cost of living crisis. We've seen people take to the streets to use their anger to demand change. And every week now, worker after worker is realising the power that they actually hold within themselves. They don't need to wait for politicians sometimes. They can demand that better life if they join together in solidarity and take that collective action. And, you know, demands from the Enough's Enough campaign, from the trade unions, etc., they're not radical. They're not even left wing, I would say. They're simply the very bedrock of any civilised society. Demands that ensure that everybody has the means to maintain a decent standard of life. And these are demands like a real inflationary pay rise, as well as inflationary rises in pensions and benefits. It's a demand like asking for a £15 an hour minimum wage, or at the very least, a roadmap towards that. It's a demand banning fire and rehiring zero-hour contracts, banning repealing anti-trade union laws and rolling out a new deal for workers so that we have security at work and decent pay and the ability to collectively bargain. Um, another demand is freezing the price cap, but also recognising that whilst freezing the energy price cap is necessary now it's not a long-term solution it's a sticking plaster and it just subsidizes the bumper bonuses and shareholder dividends of the energy companies who are pushing up prices in the first place and what we now demand is public ownership of energy and not just energy water rail mail and broadband it's also demanding a right to food for all. I mean, that's a basic thing to ask for in this day and age in a country as wealthy as ours, but a right to food for all and universal free school meals. And there's also demands for rent caps, support with mortgage repayments in the form of caps for homeowners who were at risk of losing their home through this crisis and a mass council house building programme and a charter for renters' rights. And to pay for all of this, of course, we demand that the wealthiest pay their fair share. Now, that's not an extensive list of demands. It's a very short list of demands that the government can meet. 
and we need to mobilize the movement now. So how can you play your part in bringing this movement together and instigating this change? Well, until the next general election, we've got to ensure that we all work together to ensure that these thousands of voices that are trying to be heard are heard as effectively as possible. We've got to ensure that at the Labour Party conference, for example, we adopt these demands unequivocally and we use our power as a political party to support those who are demanding that better quality of life. We could do it as Labour Party members in our constituency meetings, and we can also go to our local Labour MPs and ask them to support these demands and let them know a little bit more about these campaigns. But most importantly, I think, is how visible we are in our support. And I would ask everybody to visibly support strike action when you see it happening in your area. Make sure that those striking workers who are fighting for us all feel that solidarity and support. And go further than that, articulate on your social media and to your friends and family the reasons as to why this strike action is happening so that people really understand. Now, train drivers and rail workers have already been standing up. Teachers and school staff will potentially be standing up soon. NHS workers potentially will be standing up soon. Exam boards have already been standing up over the summer. Barristers were standing up earlier this week. Postal workers are standing up tomorrow and we're standing up last week and the more who stand up the more we'll stand with them because the time has come now as I said this is a pivotal moment in Labour history when we fight for our children's futures for the lives that we know that they all deserve a full pay packet and a full and fruitful life so I just finished by saying this really to, to many of our workers who are striking at the moment Without you, the country would have come to a standstill in many cases, particularly key workers during the pandemic. And you shouldn't have to beg for a cost of living pay rise, nor should any worker. You should be rightfully sharing the fruits of wealth that your industry creates. And workers should remember their power. They're not little cogs in the economic machine. They are the economic machine. So solidarity, everybody. I know everyone on this call and millions of others across the country are at these striking workers' back. They're behind the campaigns, uh, demands for the cost of living campaigns, and we'll all be campaigning and fighting for the life that we all deserve in this country. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was fantastic. Um, you covered so much ground. Uh, really great start to this evening. Um, I'll move straight to our next speaker, who's Simon Fletcher, uh, who is a writer and Labour movement campaigner. So, Simon. Thanks, Ruth, and thanks for inviting me. Um, and well, I just want to agree with Becky, this is no time to uh, celebrate. I'll shed no tears for Boris Johnson. Um, but uh, I think the first thing to say is this is a continuation of the Tory government, uh, not a brand new government. Um, the Prime Minister has changed, but the Tories definitely haven't. I want to cover three quick points. Um, one, which is my main point, really, which is how the cost of living crisis is continuing to weigh, work its way through politics. Build, it's actually building some points that I made at an Arise session earlier in the summer. And two, what that might mean for the general election. And three, some uh, small points on what needs to happen in relation to the Labour Party and the left. So one, on the cost of living crisis, as Becky has said, this is the biggest um, collapse in living standards for decades, affecting millions of people. It's deepening a wages squeeze that has been underway for years. Furthermore, Rishi Sunak's spring measures didn't abolish the wages crisis and nor were the policies of Liz Truss. So millions of workers are being made to pay by being forced to accept worsened pay levels, um, changes to their working conditions or cuts to their jobs altogether. That is extracting more out of working class people for less. And to ensure that working people can be squeezed in this way, the Tory leadership presided over hard, has presiding and is presiding over a hard line over the rail disputes, pushed through measures to help agency workers break strikes and did nothing of substance over PO. The incoming leadership has already briefed it wants a so-called bonfire of workers' rights. So that so that, and so that we're clear on their intent, Jacob Reese Mogg has been appointed as business secretary. So it's safe to assume that we're gonna see bigger and bigger confrontations. Now, all of that being said, 
faced with the impending calamity of the energy bills crisis, the government is being forced to act. Um, and the, but the measures that Trust is going to announce tomorrow do not remove all those pre-existing pressures on working class people that have led to the waging, wages crisis and, have, uh, and the attack on workplace rights and the conditions of employment. So and that pressure on living standards has been building for years and is intensified even before the likelihood of the energy bills crisis. So we also know it's highly likely that the Tories will place the cost of their package onto borrowing, something that inevitably in the end will be paid for by the majority, not through uh, dealing with profiteering. In fact, it has become a pattern that when the British government steps in during a crisis, the state passes the cost onto people on lower and middle incomes in the end. We saw it with austerity after the crash in 2008, and the Tories keep repeating this principle of making working class people pay. On top of that, the Bank of England today indicated that we're heading for a recession. So the squeeze on working people is still there. Major national disputes involving RMT, TSSA, ASLIF on the railways, huge national disputes involving the CWU, the BIN dispute in Scotland involving Unison, Unite, GMB, other unions balloting or preparing to ballot, including NEU, UCU, NES, UWT, FBU, PCS, and so on. So the present phase of politics, and I agree with Becky, is a, is a, a pivotal moment. It, it involves an open battle to determine who bears the cost of a whole series of problems, i.e. which class interest will prevail, who pays. And we're at a critical point where many working class people are taking action openly. Their success or otherwise will determine how much room for a manoeuvre the Tories and the employers uh, will have. So every single advance made in these campaigns will benefit all people struggling for a better quality of life. So the conclusion has to be that total solidarity and active support for each of these disputes is a responsibility of the whole movement. And I want to come back to that uh, right at the end. Just briefly on point two about the general election. I worked for the Labour Party in the run-up to the 2015 general election and Labour was regularly ahead of the Tories during Ed Miliband's leadership and we lost. We can't be complacent. Nonetheless, a Labour government is an increasingly plausible outcome and the wider left needs to prepare for that eventuality. So just on some of the political implications, implications for Labour and for the left. For Labour, every single person who wants to protect household incomes needs the government's pay squeeze to be defeated. That requires the trade union movement to, to succeed. That is why what is a trade union issue is also a wider social issue and why uh, it is able to bind together many more people around it. So we need to continue to press uh, support for the unions within Labour and, and, and Labour should be supporting trade unions in those disputes. Secondly, in addition, at every stage where Labour has taken the initiative, however, you know, whatever its limitations, such as over the windfall tax and the energy price fees freeze, it has been able to lead the argument. Uh, and there is a lesson there for the next two years. It is in the interests, the electoral interests of the Labour Party to take a bold line with policies that are big enough to confront the scale of the crisis that we face. And then in terms of the left, uh, and, and Becky was right about the uh, enough is enough and, and other things, I, the, the new campaigns initiatives that have sprung up in the last period are extremely welcome. And in addition to, in addition to enough is enough, we've seen momentum support the launch of Labour for Labour. Um, and I think it is necessary to take the movement of working people defending their pay in terms of conditions through the structures of the party. And that means in, not exhaustive and, and not in any particular order, organising solidarity at all levels of the party from CLP level through to regions and conference. And that means things like the election of trade union officers and political education officers are tremendously important in this situation and can make a difference in terms of speakers at meetings, uh, strike fundraising socials and so on. Arguing that support for these workers is necessary for the advance of the Labour Party, not counterposed to it. Building support for the Green Paper on Employment Rights launched last year at conference and pressing the Labour Party to stay focused on the cost of living crisis. Supporting trade unions when they're being attacked by the Tory party, including when trade, leading trade unions are being denigrated and red baited. Developing an economic agenda that shows concretely how to pay for the improved incomes and better services in a way that is economically coherent. Showing that the climate crisis, which the summer demonstrated is becoming more acute, means that we need policies that can bring all these issues together and supporting the work of the unions as they reach out to build alliances themselves, as we see with enough stuff and other things, to help break down attempts by the right to play people off against each other. 
That means serious and broad alliances at all levels of the party based on the principle of real solidarity. And I'll, I'll leave it there if that's okay, Ruth. Thank you very much indeed. And um, thank you for keeping so brilliantly to time. Um, but again, you've, you've covered a lot of ground very succinctly. Uh, and I think that need for us to uh, work together and to support uh, trade union struggles and community struggles is absolutely key. And as you say, the risk of the right capitalising and setting people against each other is a very real one, uh, particularly at a time of crisis like this. Um, our next um, speaker will actually be Sam Browse from Arise, who's just going to say a few words on behalf of the organisers. Hello, comrades. How are you doing? Uh, it's fantastic to have uh, so many people on the call. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's great to be um, for so many people to be listening on this great political discussion as well. Um, the first I want to tell you, well, I want to say four things to you Four four easy things. The first thing I want to implore you um, is, is please donate. Um, there's a, a donate link that's being shared in the chat repeatedly. Um, we're as, uh, the team of volunteers. We all do this kind of voluntarily. Um, and we can only do that and uh, we can only put on these events with the support of of the people who attend them so please please use that donate link um it'll be um it's it's what it's what allows us to thrive it's what allows us to put on these events um so that's the first point the second point um obviously we need to do everything we can to support pickets to support um the campaigning that's going on on our streets um to support direct action and things like that against the government sort of onslaught on working people and we also need to support and be vocal about the political solutions um, to the problems that we face so the second thing i'd really like you to urge you, urge you to do is check out our workers can't wait petition there are 10 demands in that petition which are all about addressing the immediate causes of a um of a cost of living crisis and 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 really talking about how we build a better world coming out of the crisis as well so please um please check out our workers can't wait and send a message uh, our workers can't wait petition and send a message uh, to Liz Truss. The third thing, so that's, a, that's the second thing, the third thing I, I wanna tell you, um, I just wanna to talk to you a bit about our conference in December, that's happening on December the 10th. It's called Solidarity, Struggle, Socialism. I'm absolutely delighted that it will be an in-person conference. We've not had one of those in a long time at Rise, so I'm really, really glad that we can do that. Um, please check out the link in the chat um, for, for tickets and it will show you a, a full, well, a full and evolving list of the, of the people that will be speaking at that conference. And again, that's a real chance to not only organise um, on the pickets, not only organise on the streets, but also to organise politically and talk about the political solutions to the crisis that we need and really get involved in some really high level discussion. Um, I think it'll be some of the highest level discussion out there. So please get yourself to the conference and get yourself a ticket. And the fourth thing, I don't know if I forgot to mention this the first time round, but please, please donate. Like I say, the only way we can organize these meetings, um, put on events like this is, is with your help. Together, we're much stronger. The bosses have got their big banker friends. They've got their big media mogul friends. We've got each other. Um, so solidarity, thanks so much for tuning in today and make sure uh, you follow those links that I mentioned. Cheers and thanks so much for being here. I hope you enjoy the rest of the event. Great, thank you very much indeed, Sam. Um, our next panellist is John McDonnell MP, uh, who will be familiar to many people, um, who's helped to bring together today's event and is such a vital voice for an alternative that puts people, health and the planet first. Uh, so, John, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Ruth. Um, I've literally just come out of the um, Commons Chamber and, that's, uh, and I'm in my, my office in, in, in Parliament. We've been debating the Financial Services and Markets Bill. Um, so I want to... To be frank, sitting in that Commons chamber, listening to the Tories going on about the wonders of our finance sector and how, how what it contributes to our economy when I'm one of those people who went through the experience of the banking crash and are now witnessing the speculation that's going on is nauseating. But let me, I don't want to repeat what others have said, and I've got here in time to listen to most. I just want to talk very briefly about 
um, what I think is the economic situation at the moment and then try and map out what we expect over the next six to 12 months. And then hopefully we can then get a proper discussion and a Q&A going. Um, the first thing to say is with regard to the cost of living crisis, every time we talk about this or we hear people talking about this, we've really got to confront them with the, the reality. Um, the myth that's been put about by uh, the Tories and others is somehow this cost of living crisis is being exacerbated by wage inflation and that we risk this wage inflation spiral. The reality is this, and let's be absolutely clear, um, the inflationary issues that we're facing as, as an economy and the cost of living crisis that we're facing as a result stems from, it's true, the COVID supply chain breakdown, completely true as we came out of COVID recovering the supply chains across the globe and said everyone. Secondly, it is true um, that the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine has affected the flow of commodities and impacted not just on energy, but foodstuffs as well. And it has a destabilizing factor globally as well. So yes, they are the real, they are real factors. And the Bank of England governor has actually said 80% of the inflationary pressures in our economy come from that, they're external. The remaining pressures are not in wages, they're actually a combination of profiteering by large corporations. And we see that across a whole range of our economic sectors. But in addition to that, and that's why the debate in the Commons today was so at times infuriating. In addition to that, what we're seeing is the shift of speculators globally into particular energy, but also into food. Global Justice, if you have time, go to their website um, and they provide a really good briefing on what's happening with regard to the speculative um, profiteering from food prices in particular. Anne Pettifer has done some really good work on this and she had an excellent um, letter in the Financial Times this week. Basically what's happening is <clears throat> speculators will go from commodity to commodity. They'll see if there's going to be an increased demand and therefore an increased price and they'll pour into that particular commodity. This time around, they've seen both energy but also they've seen food in particular. The UN Special Rapporteur said, quite rightfully, Olivia Stutler said, um, this is gambling on people's hunger, gambling on people's hunger, and that's what they're doing. So by pouring in to basically speculate on the future price of foodstuffs, they're actually forcing up the price of those foodstuffs. What the government do, are doing today on the Financial Services and Markets Bill is to take off some of the regulation that was introduced after the banking crash 2007, 2008, specifically introduced around food as well, because the regulations that were brought in after the crash, which weren't particularly strong, but they were at least a move forward, were to control how much speculation could go on within the food markets, how much individual speculators could hold in that particular commodity or asset and put limits on it. The government are seeking to sweep that away. And what that will do, um, it will base, it's a post-Brexit piece of legislation. So instead of being tied into the, what they call the MIFID rules under the European Union now, they're tearing up those rules and they'll introducing their own, but effectively wiping out the, the speculation controls that we had after the banking crash. What that will do is it'll force up prices, both in terms of energy, but also in terms of foodstuffs as well. I think there can be no, I'm thinking of a, a more great, can there be any more disgraceful way of profiteering than from people starving? And that's what effectively what, what they're doing. So that's the economic situation that we face. 
what's with the election of trust, and I think I don't know, others must have said it, you know, the trust, trust in her cabinet is, there's no doubt about it, it is the most reactionary and right wing administration and cabinet that we, we've ever experienced. It is startlingly right wing. And they've reverted exactly to type. Um, it's like stepping back in time, really. It, what we've reverted to is trickle down economics. Keir Starmer cited that in the Commons Chamber today. Actually, he was right. I'm glad he's using that language now. He hasn't done before. This is trickle down economics. And what does that mean? It means tax cuts for the rich and corporations. Somehow this will permeate down so everyone will benefit from it. It never has. It's never worked. Trickle down economics has never worked. It's largely resulted in extremes of grotesque levels of inequality. The rich get richer and the corporations get more powerful. And actually working people also get poorer. And they get poorer as a combination to pay for those tax cuts. It's always the case to pay for those tax case cuts. What the Tories have to do is reduce public expenditure. How do they do that? Through austerity. But they also do it through wage controls, um, forcing wages down, particularly in the public sector, but then they set it in the public sector so it sets the level in the private sector. This is classic trickle-down economics that we're witnessing at the moment. Inevitably linked to that, <clears throat> and it's neoliberalism, is the policy of making sure workers do not have the power to negotiate to protect their wages. So inevitably what we'll see now, and she's already announced it, hasn't she, that she wants to see it brought forward quickly, which is further attack on trade union rights. What's interesting over the next few days, you'll see that the government will be bringing forward its policy for tackling energy prices. We've got a statement in the House of Commons tomorrow, <clears throat> and it will, it will be based upon, by the looks of it, um, borrowing large amounts of money. They're talking about 100 billion borrowing. Um, they're doing this as an exception. It's completely contrary to their normal trickle-down economics, but actually they realise somehow they've got to buy out or buy off as much as resistance as they possibly can, because they know they're not that stupid. They know that if they don't do something, there's going to be people on the streets, and actually it could damage this government so that it almost comes close to toppling. They're worried about that. So, yes, yeah, so the next day or so, They'll announce a big borrowing package in which they will freeze energy bills in some form. They won't deal with the energy price rises that have already taken place, that are hurting people so badly, but they will, I think, freeze the energy prices. But remember on that, that borrowing, by the sound of it, it looks as though they'll borrow it and it will either fall on the taxpayer, so all of us will have to pay for that borrowing, or... They'll let the companies, they'll give it to the companies and the companies will then do some form of agreement where people will pay higher bills over a longer period of time. Either way, it means working people bailing out these companies. And in return for bailing out with such a vast amount of money, 100 billion, and we'll get nothing from it. There'll be no equity, no estates, no shares, no ownership of those companies. They'll, within two years, they'll be hoping to be laughing all the way to the banks again as they profiteer at our expense and increase the price of energy once again. That's the situation that we're facing. I've listened to, I missed a bit of Becky's speech, but I listened to most of it and um, Simon's. What do we do about it? Well, we resist, we resist. And exactly as Becky said, I think what's gonna happen now, there'll be spontaneous resistance. It's already happening. The strikes are a form of spontaneous resistance. People have had enough, so they wait the winter go on strike to make sure that they get inflation-proof protection in their, their wages. But you'll also see, I think, what will happen is if they if the Tories do come forward with further anti-trade union legislation, already unions are coordinating their strike action, choosing appropriate days where they can combine together. I think if there is a, an attempt to a further action action against trade unions and further restrictions on trade union rights. I think spontaneously unions will come out together. I don't think it needs to be particularly planned. I wish it was, but I think actually people will think, well, there's nothing else to lose now because they're destroying the whole reason for trade unions to exist. So I, that's my warning to this government. Push it too far and I tell you the unions will react and they'll react in a 
with strength because these strikes are building up the confidence of people that they can resist and they can fight back and they can win, as is demonstrated by dispute after dispute that we're winning at the moment in, in decent settlements. The other issue for me as well, I think there will be, as I think Becky mentioned, there will be spontaneous direct action as well. We're already seeing it. Actually, I welcome the Enough is Enough campaign because it brings people together around a set of demands that we can campaign for together. But there's lots of groups as well saying I fully support those demands. But actually, I want to take direct action in support of it, whether it's about rent controls against evictions or whether it's about tackling the climate change crisis as well. And I think we'll see more and more of that as much as we can. And exactly as Simon and, and, and Becky have said, really, my, my view is how do you react to that? You support it. You just get the absolute act of solidarity, get on those picket lines. When direct action is taking place, you support them and you do everything you can to ensure that the message get out, gets out there about why this is taking place and what sort of change that do we want. And that's really where I come on to the Labour Party, because there's some in the Labour Party now who think trust is so bad and the situation, the economic situation is, is so dire that inevitably the Tories will fail and we'll have a Labour government elected. It's almost election by default, you know. The Tories will be thrown out because people have had enough of them in the, in the economic circumstances that we have at the moment. I don't... I don't fall for that because um, I can remember when they got rid of Thatcher and brought in John Major we thought we were going to win the election then and we didn't in 92 so you can't take any election for granted and the only way I think you win elections is yes of course the unpopularity of the government but you win it by inspiring people and giving them hope and what we've got to do is recognize you know the resistance will come from the trade union movement from working class people in all the different forms of action we can take place. But we have to recognize electoral politics does come into this. And that means with our electoral system, it does mean supporting the election of a Labour government. But that Labour government can't expect people to vote for it if it isn't on the side of working people during those struggles. And if it doesn't offer a clear inspirational hope for the future. And that's where I think the struggle will go on. So in some ways, the debate around policy and what the Labour Party should be doing should be taking place on those picket lines in the various group campaigning groups that have taken direct action, et cetera. So we create a climate of opinion that even those elements in the Labour Party that just want to sit on their hands cannot resist because I don't think you too get elected by default. And if we've got a mobilisation, a mass movement uh, based upon the trade unions and civil society overall, bringing people together in that way. I think even the Labour Party leadership as it is at the moment can't resist taking up some of the radical policies that we'll be advocating. And it is very basic, Becky and others have and Simon have run through it. All we're asking for, inflation-proof wages, benefits and pensions, make sure that there are controls on energy, foodstuffs and rents, making sure that we actually have trade union rights restored again and that we then we mobilise the whole of our economy then to tackle the climate emergency that we're now facing. All of those, Becky mentioned it actually, these aren't particularly left-wing demands, they're just common sense. We build that in the movement so that when we go into the next election, actually we do go into the election on a manifesto that people can recognise and tackle the problems that they're facing. I'm I just say this, despite all that's gone on the last period, I'm incredibly optimistic at the moment, because what we're seeing at the moment is the strength of the working class and the renewal of the, the working class movement in this country on a mass scale. People willing, willing to take action because they've had enough, but also because they, they want radical change and they've got the ideas to do it. The creativity in our movement is in, in, immense. So on that basis, on that optimistic note, I just say that meetings like this that Arise have been organising, which I'm really grateful for, and I thank them, the organisers, for doing it. Meetings like this, I think, are critically important because it enables us to exchange ideas, but it does build confidence in the planning for the next six to 12 months, which I think will be intense class struggle. Solidarity. Thank you very much indeed, John. And um, definitely I've been talking to people on picket lines uh, in my own union saying they've had picket lines at railway stations that haven't had one for 50 years. People have been involved in industrial action who, who've never been out before in their lives. 
And I think we have reached a critical point and tonight's event is uh, is very timely uh, in helping us think about how we might respond to what's happening and to bring people together. Um, more and more people are joining us uh, on the Zoom, which is fantastic. And we've got over a thousand people uh, on all the platforms joining us from places as from Cumbria, Brighton, Islington, Stroud, Cardiff, Southampton, Bristol, uh, Wales, Lowestoft, Winchester, Bethnal Green, Christchurch, Indonesia. So we've got some international solidarity here. Bishop Stortford, uh, Swansea, Norfolk, West Yorkshire. So brilliant to have comrades with us from such a, a, a big uh, geographical area. Um, and thanks to people for your questions. Uh, and for putting things in the chat. Um, particularly thanks to Judith uh, talking about how Whitney CLP has been supporting the local RMT uh, as well as the CWU and is now liaising with Unite. Um, and that reaching out, making sure that we're talking to people in other unions apart from our own, making sure we join a union if we're not already in a union and that we link up uh, struggles across uh, different movements is so important at the moment. Um, we are incredibly grateful to people who've made a donation. Um, everyone involved in Arise is doing this on a voluntary basis, but it does cost to have the tech that enables uh, large scale meetings to be put out and to be live streamed. If you are in a position to make a donation, even if it's a tiny donation, and we saw in the Labour Party um, previously, you know, a lot of people giving a relatively small amount uh, can be incredibly powerful uh, so we it doesn't matter if it's small if you can make a donation at all that would be fantastic uh, we've got masses of questions which is great we've got enough time i'm hoping um to do a couple of rounds i'll read out the questions um probably to make sure that we get them all in i'll do a quick round of four um if panelists can keep the contributions fairly short we might have time for another round as well which would be brilliant so this issue um three people um have brought up so Teresa on zoom asks what are your views on the renationalization of utilities and all public transport will it lead to less recession and inflation uh linked to that also on zoom was why isn't Keir Starmer for nationalizing at least energy and water uh from Anne and then Sabine on zoom says we need renationalization of all essential services. I know a couple of speakers have already touched on this, um, but if anyone wants to come in, perhaps about how we make that a key demand. Um, we've got a separate question from Ben. We know that the Tories would never be able to win an election at the moment, but Liz has the power to call an election when it suits her. How can we force an early election instead of having to endure two more years of Tory mismanagement. Uh, Elena on Zoom says, why is the Labour Party not allowing MPs in the shadow cabinet to stand with the strikers? Is this not giving the wrong message? And Wanda on Zoom says, will cutting taxes encourage investments as trust claims? So if, um, if you, I don't know who'd like to go first, maybe Becky, because we, we heard from you first. Would you like to pick up on any of those? Thanks, Ruth. There's loads there. I'll, I'll try. I won't go into detail and all of it because I know we've got our experts in Simon and John that will know loads about this as well. But on the public ownership side of things, part of the cost of living crisis, um, and as John's already you know alluded to this, a lot is blamed on the war in Ukraine, and that has had a, an impact. But it's largely the price increases that we're seeing are largely down to the profiteering of companies within the energy sector. And that's just an exacerbation of what was happening already. So, for example, with the national grid, I think it was £13 billion were paid out in dividends over the five years up to 2019. On the supply companies, the big, big six energy companies, or the big five now, I think they are, made £23 billion in dividends between 2010 and 2020. Uh, and 43 billion if you include share buyback. Um, and then you've got the energy generating companies themselves, which is a little bit more of a difficult and more tricky question. But to bring them all into public ownership, because there's different elements that make up our electricity and gas bill. 
if you brought the grid into public ownership, it would do two things. It would make sure that that monopoly, because you can't choose to use a different electricity grid when you buy your electricity or gas, there's just one that you can use and it's owned by a selection of individual companies, the main national grid, and then your district supply networks. If you brought those into public ownership, that's a small shaving off your bill for starters. Um, and it would only, it would save us, I think it's an estimated £3.7 billion a year. And we'd actually pay for it within 7.5 years. And that 3.7 billion that we would get in savings, that's enough to buy, I think they estimated, 222 wind turbines, as well as making the savings on bills. When you look at the supply companies, that's even easier to bring in public ownership. The TUC um, did a piece of work on this recently, where they said that the cost of nationalising the big five energy retailers would cost about 2.8 billion. Now, Liz Truss is rolling out an 100 billion pounds energy package. Most of that money is going to go to supply companies, grid companies and energy generators, whereas at 2.8 billion, if she used it wisely, she could use that to buy the supply companies. So they weren't adding on profit to our bills and that money could be used to either be reinvested into retrofitting and insulating people's homes or to bring their energy bills down. At the moment, we're in a situation where even before the energy crisis, we had companies like Bulb, you know, the big companies that were collapsing, and the government was giving them millions and billions of pounds to prop them up. And we weren't seeing anything in return, as John said already. Now, in terms of energy generation, that's more difficult because it's so diverse and there's a large number of companies that are all carrying out different projects. But what we can do, to ensure that we create a, a restructure of the energy system overall is use public investment to invest in renewable energy. And when you create those new energy companies, whether it's wind turbines or solar farms or a new power station, make sure that at least 51% is owned by the state. And that will give us the power then to determine the price that the energy is sold at and also the amount that customers are charged and how much needs to be invested back into our infrastructure. So there are three things that we need to do, the grid, the suppliers, and the generators themselves. It can be done and it would save an enormous amount of money. And I think just doing that one thing would be huge, but we can't stop there. I think we need to look at water, which is as dysfunctional as energy and also rail, mail, and broadband, I think, because it's an essential, um, Thing that we need to live our daily lives at the moment it's central to this event tonight and it's been central to us all throughout the whole pandemic and working from home and we've got to see it as that piece of national critical infrastructure that it is really um on the other points on forcing an early general election i don't think we can john might be a bit more of an expert on this than me but i don't think we've got any parliamentary levers that we can use to be able to do that and i'm sure everybody on the call agrees that it's not right to not allow any Labour MP to attend a strike. I think the Labour Party and the trade union movement are inextricably linked. It was the Labour movement that created the Labour Party. And as such, I'd expect all of our Labour MPs to be on picket lines if they are a Labour MP. Um, so it, it's a bit absurd to me. And, and I hope that that position changes at conference. I'll stop there, otherwise I'll be going all night. Thank you very much indeed for that, Becky. Um, uh, Simon, shall we go to you next? Yeah, um, on the public ownership point, I mean, Becky's dealt with the detail of, of um, the energy sector. Um, I, I would suppose I'd make a sort of general point that the it, it's an extremely strange time, well, it's the wrong time to try to change Labour's policy away from public ownership. The pandemic and the cost of living crisis have strengthened the argument for, for public ownership of the major utilities. The, uh, during the pandemic, the franchising model, the, the tourist franchising model for the railways collapsed um, and, you know, demonstrated not to work in, in, in that situation. Becky's already said on the energy, on the energy one. Likewise, the, the postal workers and the, and the Royal Mail demonstrated its absolute centrality to people's lives uh, during, during the pandemic, um, as did the absence in many cases of adequate uh, broadband for, for many people, i.e. the sort of centrality of those communication links during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, it, essentially we, we've, we've slightly worried that I might have frozen. 
Um, I can hear you okay. Okay, great. Um, well, so so basically, at the very point at which the the the, the benefit of public ownership of these utilities has been demonstrated, we've been faced instead with the party leadership trying to shift its position. Now, as it happens on rail, um, you know, after what uh, Rachel Rees and Keir Starmer said, there was a scramble to clarify the position. And I, I you know, and I do think the conference um, is an extremely important place to clarify, keep clarifying these issues as we get closer to the formation of the manif manifesto. Um, I just want to say that something on this issue of the, of members of the Shadow Cabinet and the front bench joining picket lines. And first of all, I think the position has started to fray around the edges um, as a result of people um, not abiding by it. But it, it, the concern about this is not limited um, to the campaign group uh, or to, um, you know, the, the sort of left in the party. Someone like John Crudders, who's not a member of the, of the campaign group, has, has argued, you know, very clearly that the, uh, the, the nature of the situation that we're in the cost of living crisis and the fact that layers and layers and layers of people are being pushed into dispute means that the situation requires the Labour Party to stand with those people. Otherwise, how on earth can we expect them to vote for us? Um, and it, it's, it's as if at the very, again, at the very point at which the situation was being changed by the nature of the crisis, the, the party leadership sought to wall itself off from the, from the movement that was uh, developing uh, amongst working people. Um, Again, it just takes me back to the points I was making at the start. We need to take those movements through the structures of the party to, as a countervailing pressure to those kinds of actions um, at the top. Um, and then on, on the question of the, an early election, I just think, you know, I think there should be an election. And, um, you know, the Tories keep changing their prime minister without elections. But I think the main thing that we can do is build the support um, of, of opposition to, to the government's policies on the cost of living, on the attack on trade union rights, uh, on, a, on their inadequate um, approach to climate change and so on and so on and so on, because then we need to build the opposition and that is the best way uh, to change the balance of forces and, and get an election and win one. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Uh, and John, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to those and perhaps to pick up on the question about whether cutting taxes would encourage investments. Yeah, just on on that, but on on the issue of the um, Keir, someone asked why is Keir opposed to public ownership or whatever? Because he's just mistaken. That's why it, I think it's a mistake. Um, and there's there's been this. Some of them around him consider have never really supported public ownership, but also they seem to think it's it's a vote loser. And actually, if you, exactly as Simon said, if you look at what's happened over particularly the recent period, um, public ownership, uh, support in the polls is enormous. That has been for rail for quite a while. Water now, especially because of all the pollution of our rivers and our, our beaches. But every aspect of where there's a sort of a monopoly, a natural monopoly, people recognise that now. They see through it. And, and they're in support of public ownership. So I... I actually do think it's extremely popular. And Keir's argument around the energy crisis that we shouldn't be spending money on bringing companies into public ownership. We should be using it solely to freeze the energy price. Well, the way we're doing that is basically bailing out those companies. And most of the um, retail companies without that support would go bust anyway. You just have to bring them into public ownership. And the mechanisms, as Becky has laid out, are fairly straightforward for doing it. And it's not as complex or difficult as some people are trying to portray them. And in, in many ways, it's a, it's a cost saving because you just you take profiteering out of it. You take the profits out of it and you all the income that comes into those sectors then gets reinvested either in the infrastructure or decent wages but also in keeping bills down. It's, it's, I think it's just fairly straight, straightforward. On this issue, does cutting taxes increase investment? There's two issues here, and it was interesting that Liz Truss raised the issue of, um, about corporation tax cuts today. Um, they, the Tories argue that if you cut corporation taxes, when they did cut corporation tax, 
it increased the income coming into the Treasury from taxes. Just let me just explain what happened. And Becky and I were there at the time because when they cut corporation taxes, they announced it that they were going to do it in advance. So what companies did, they held back paying their taxes until the following year. They manipulated their accounts. So then on the following year, more people, more companies then paid their taxes that year rather than the early year, because in the year that they paid, they'd have a reduced burden of tax. So it was a it was a manipulation of the taxation system, if you like. And they keep using this analysis. It doesn't, it's not not true. The issue around investment, though, is if you do cut taxes, the idea is that investment will flow into the, the country or the sector. There's no evidence for that. Um, but what the government have been doing, remember, what Rishi Sunak did is he offered £50 billion worth of tax reliefs in, a, in the previous budget. And what we were going to do, and Becky started the work on it, we were going to explore every tax relief to see whether or not actually they were fulfilling the objectives. And a lot of it was providing a tax relief so that companies would have reduced taxes and they'd invest. What we discovered when we were looking at uh, the tax relief system that was in place was actually companies and corporations were taking the money and not investing. And we had low levels of investment as a result of that, low levels of productivity, and as a result of that, low wages. So actually it's never worked in this country effectively. Instead, what Becky was developing at Bayes was that um, on the basis of Mariana Mazzucato and a whole group of economists' recommendations, you have that mission approach where you identify a sector which you want to ensure is investment in, and you develop new products through largely through research and development. And as a result of that, you can grow that sector. Um, but if it is always based upon, and it's even in the States, this is the case, it's always in, based upon largely state investment at the beginning to start the ball rolling. And we always used to ex use the example of um, in America, for example, when you have your mobile phone and that you're pressing your mobile phone, that screen development, research and development of that screen technology came as a result of a government grant, even in America. Problem was the government grant was linked to the CIA, but that's another story altogether. But what I'm saying is, is reducing taxes by tax release and other mechanisms hasn't got a track record of success of increasing investment. State investment has, and often that state investment in research and development, which creates a market that can then develop on to create the jobs and the, the high skills and wages that we need. And that's exactly what we're going to do in government. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, it's brilliant to have the opportunity to ask um, such, uh, to, to get such thoughtful responses from people and for people to be able to feed in their questions. Uh, we are very close uh, for time. I'm just gonna read out two final questions and perhaps if each of you could just answer one of them, um, I'm hoping that two will be covered in that uh, and then we'll conclude. Uh, so Terence on Zoom says, uh, we need to find new sources of tax. How about a truly equitable inheritance tax on wealth and property? So a short response on that would be great. Uh, and another question from Facebook is, how does trust compare to other Conservative MPs? Some have said she's a neoliberal ideologue, but others have suggested she's more like a Boris Johnson populist. What's your take and how should we respond? So um, I'll take you in the same order. So Becky, if you could respond to one of those, that would be great. Um, I'll do the trust comparing to other MPs. I, I don't think we should be under any illusion about what she is. She wants to be the next Margaret Thatcher. And all this talk about that, oh, well, she used to be in the Liberal Democrats. Forget that. She might have been on a little bit of a journey, but she arrived at quite a dark destination and she's staying there. Um, and the, the fact that in Prime Minister's questions today is that she didn't try to... Now, obviously, she was nervous because it was her first PMQs, but she didn't try to play to the gallery, which I thought was quite interesting. And she didn't operate in sound bites either. She was very firm. She didn't believe in tax. She wanted low taxes and that she was going to sort out the energy crisis and explore new forms of energy by which she meant fracking. So we know what direction of travel she's going to go in. She's 
like Margaret Thatcher on speed. She's got all of the kind of neoliberal um, supporters around her and in her cabinet. And she was the author of a book along with a lot of the people who are now currently in the cabinet called Britannia Unchained, which is basically a doctrine. It's like a new doctrine of the like next generation of Thatcherites on how to roll out neoliberalism across the UK. And it's all centered around deregulation, stamping out workers' rights and collective action and turning us into somewhere like Singapore, quite frankly. So we should be very worried. I don't think we can compare her in the, to Boris. I think she's very set on what she believes in. Thank you very much, Becky. Uh, Simon. Yeah, well, can I take Terence's question about tax sources of tax? Um, in a previous life, I, I was part of the campaign to get Richard Leonard elected as the leader of the Scottish mm -hmm. Labour Party. And uh, in that campaign, Richard made an argument for uh, a wealth tax uh, in Scotland. Part, part of the reason for that was that um, there was a limit to the amount that you could raise uh, through some of the existing tax bans in Scotland uh, amongst the Scottish population. But there was huge amounts uh, potentially locked up in wealth in land in Scotland that was like not touched by uh, any form of taxation. And uh, that that is a really important point, um, which I don't think we spend enough time on at all. So I, so I think, first of all, I'd say Google Richard Leonard's uh, wealth tax, because Richard has some really good points about that. But I think a proper discussion about the options for uh, wealth tax should, shouldn't be put off the agenda um, at all, because there, there's, there is huge amounts of wealth just tied down in our society and not being made to work for, uh, for the rest of us. Thank you very much, Simon. And finally, John. Simon's is absolutely spot on. We've not really developed sufficient policy with regard to taxation of wealth. There's a wealth tax commission and a great report published, um, I think it was 18 months ago, Becky, wasn't it? By, it was Aaron Advani and um, Emma Chamberlain and Andy Sun. They produced a report on a wealth tax for the UK. Richard Bergen has taken it up and has been lobbying for it in Parliament. He's done a good job. That's the first thing. Second thing is financial transaction tax. The people in the City of London, the speculators, 30% increase in their bonuses this year. In one month in March, 6 billion paid out in bonuses. What we need is a financial transaction tax, which will bring in income, but also actually will slow down the pace of some of the transactions that are taking place that are completely speculative. Then thirdly, you'd expect me to say this, I'm the president of the land value taxation campaign. And I think we need to look at land again. We're not talking about taxing people's homes or gardens or anything like that but we're talking about taxation of really looking at land value. We've got an all-party group on land value capture. Uh, we're producing a report in hopefully in the next three or four months. Have a look at that. But there's their three areas, wealth tax, financial transaction tax in the city, and looking at how we properly tax land. And I just say this thing on land, land values are going up every time we put public investment into something like a railway or a new development or whatever, it increases the value of that land. And at the moment, particularly in our capital, in our cities, not just the capital city, in our cities, though that investment then is producing speculation, often by overseas owners. And so in my constituency, the Elizabeth line is going through, land values have gone through the roof. We now have overseas investors buying properties in my constituency and they leave them empty because it still goes up in value even if they don't rent them out. That can't be right. So land value taxation, I think, could be key. Thank you so much. Uh, just before we move to kind of concluding remarks, um, in the chat, you'll see that there are Arise model motions for conference, including ones on public ownership. So please do have a look at those and try to get those passed uh, in your local CLP. Um, I just also want to say that uh, a lot of people wish to uh, pass on happy birthday messages to John uh, for, I believe it's tomorrow. So um, very much hope you have a good birthday. Uh, we've had a fantastic attendance. Um, thousands of people have already tuned in. Uh, to this event that Ar the Arise Festival have put on. 
And I'd like to thank everyone for participating. So all of the panel who've been very generous with their time <laughs> and their expertise and have really given answers to the questions that people have raised. Uh, also to Patrick, to Sam and the volunteer team at Arise. Our key message from today is that all the, uh, is to all those people who are on the march or will be on the march in the months ahead against Tory attacks on health, our rights, our livelihoods. We stand with you and we're here to offer you platforms to keep taking the fight to Liz Trust and the Tories. We will build the massive movements that will resist and defeat the whole rotten Tory ruling class offensive on our health rights, jobs and livelihoods. And we can help win the urgent action that people need now to tackle this crisis. And we are hearing of, you know, uh, a number of victories in trade union struggles, in community campaigns uh, and people finding their voice and their power. We'll stand up to the reactionary agenda across the board, including through fighting against divide and rule for equality and for liberation for all. And moving forward, we know just how important our campaign against the Tories reactionary agenda is and our work within Labour for socialist policies and for party democracy, which must go alongside this. Please do uh, take on board the action links that have been in the chat, including by donating if you're able to, so that we can continue to put on important events. And do follow our media partner, Labour Outlook, uh, and sign the Workers Can't Wait petition. Again, the links are in the chat. Support the People's Assembly in the Enough is Enough networks. I know there's lots of local meetings going on uh, across uh, uh, the UK. So do get involved in local activity, show that solidarity that uh, people have been talking about and join the important Arise Festival in December. We must build the resistance to the Tories and popularize socialist solutions Becky, again, uh, talked earlier about talking to our friends, to our neighbours, to our work colleagues. So share stuff on social media, but also have those one-to-one -one conversations, which are incredibly powerful in shifting opinion. Let's do it together uh, and solidarity, everyone. Thank you.